Well, good morning. Beautiful weekend, has it not? Man. So uh, when I was in South Africa the last uh, 16 days or so, it was their winter. And our first morning, we woke up and it was 35 degrees. And when we left here, it was like 97, 98 or something like that. So you can only imagine uh, the the shock to our bodies that was. And that probably explains why on my first day, I had an episode where I, uh, we had two rental vehicles that we were driving, and I was the, the following vehicle, and there was a lead vehicle. And uh, in very slow motion, I rear-ended the other vehicle and uh, had a humbling moment in front of the entire team. Uh, they were either in the vehicles or with the herding cattle that was coming in from our right. And uh, my son described it as kind of like, oh, no, you know, watching it happen. And I had to humbly confess to my wife. I sent her a text that I needed her uh, co-pilot driving that she does for me here in that moment. And so I think I've just amped it up uh, for my return here to the stateside. But uh, it's good to be back. Uh, there's, we are blessed to be here in America. Uh, we have a fantastic country uh, that affords us the opportunity to worship together and to freely open the Word of God together. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus uh, chapter 20. We're going to continue our series uh, out of the Ten Commandments. As I believe that these commandments give us understanding to the heart of God, His character, and it also then helps us realize our need for God's work because there's no way any of us could achieve what these Ten Commandments speak on our own efforts. It truly requires an intervention on God's part to help us along where our character falls short. And so that's, uh, we're going to go back, we're going to understand because it helps us again understand our need for God because our character is flawed and this reveals that, but it also reveals the beautiful character of God. And so we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 20 and we'll read to verse 16, which would be the ninth commandment. Here we go. So, and God spoke all these words... I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony 
against your neighbor. Let me pray. So God, these are your words. It says you spoke them. These aren't Moses' words. These are yours. So God, I ask that you would use your word to penetrate the innermost parts of our heart and our being. Speak to us. Convict us where we need convicting. Affirm us where we need affirmed. Encourage us where we need encouraged. And charge us where we need charged. We pray this all in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So we have understood that from these texts that there are two tables found in the Ten Commandments. The first table is about God. The second table is about our interaction with others. Jesus made this comment. He says, you can sum up the law and the prophets by two statements. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength or mind, depending on which part of the text. And then he says, and the second is like it. To love our neighbors as we would love ourselves. Now, when you consider that final statement, that's kind of strange. We don't talk about uh, we love ourselves or you've got to love yourself. I mean, you'll hear Hollywood say that, but it's with a whole different context. But let's be real here. Many of us, most of us, spend a lot of time this morning making sure that you present yourself well here today. And for all the rest of us, we're grateful for that, that you might have taken a shower and that you fix some things up, that your hair doesn't look like you just rolled out of bed. And so there is much care given to ourselves and how we appear to another, how we stand amongst our peers when sitting here together. But when we say to love and care for another, much like we would love and care for ourselves, quite frankly, we fall short in that. But yet, that's what Jesus says. If you were to look at the law, it can be summarized in two statements. Loving God fully and loving others as you would love yourselves. And the Ten Commandments reflect that. Think about what the first four commandments say, the first table. So it's, you know, there's God. And he is God and there is no other. And we shouldn't put any other before him. And we should also not make gods with our own hands. As that would be uh, defying the true reality of who God is. And we should never misuse his name. We should hold it in reverence and awe. And we should take a day a week where we rest from all the labors of everything else we do. And we worship God. We're mindful of God. We honor God with the way we spend that day. It's all about loving God fully with our whole being. But then uh, commandments 6 to 10 are all about how we interrelate and respect and care for our neighbors. Again, we're to love our neighbor as we would ourselves. And so these uh, final six commands speak to that. So it's about the closest relations where it starts. Your father and mother. That there should be an honoring, a, a respecting, and a loving of that relationship. Granted, we understand that there's much brokenness in even our parents. But there is a charge from God to engage them with respect and honor. And then we're taught to value life, not take it. We're taught to value it. And we're also then to honor the vows we make between each other. So as husbands and wives, when we take the vow of marriage between each other, that is a vow that is meant to stay till the end of our lives, and we're to honor that vow. 
and we're to protect the vows of others who have taken those same vows. So we should never take of another husband and wife from another marriage. We should honor their vows as we would honor our own. And then we are to be the protector, not only of our possessions, but the possessions of our neighbors. We shouldn't take from them. We should honor them and protect them. Trust me, I got to see this in action when we were in South Africa. As the people we stayed with were looking out for a widow whose house was just a, a few hundred yards away, but she was left vulnerable. And even while we were there, her home was broken into. And we were uh, concerned for her because she's all alone in a place that is a high crime area. In fact, that part of the world is known as one of the highest crime cities of the entire planet. And to imagine an 89-year-old living by herself. And so the neighbors are looking out for her. We shouldn't take. And then not only should we not take for our neighbors, we should uh, honor their vows, but we should also, as what it says in verse 16, says we should not give false testimony against our neighbor, but rather we should actually protect the reputation of our neighbor. Every commentary I read, every studier of this text says this verse, while it says that we should not, many of us would look and say, yeah, don't lie. That's what it's calling to. Yes, it says don't lie. But it specifically is about, again, protecting the relationships between us and other people. And it's about protecting the reputation of others is a calling of God. We should not give false testimony against our neighbor. So the ninth commandment literally is this. It is a provision from God as a legal protection for each of our reputations. It is a provision from God, the ninth commandment, that we're all called to protect each other's reputations. Now, I recognize that our character is flawed. We've already said, each of us has a flawed character. We need God's help. So there are times when accusations are real and necessary. But generally speaking, what God's intent and ideal setup for a community is that each of us are each other's protectors. We're very quick to protect the honor of our family name. Right? You mess with a parent of somebody and they speak up. The one and only fist fight I have ever been in was when somebody on a bus called my sister a name I can't even say right now. And I stood up and I said, you will not call my sister by that name. He stood up and said, what are you going to do about it? And I popped him. <laughs> Probably not the wisest response on my part. My father didn't applaud. He was on that bus at the front of it. Uh, let's just say the next thing I felt was his hand on my neck shoving me in the seat to sit me down. And then he went and sat on the lap of the other kid. Um, it's a lot more to that story, but we'll save that for another day. The point is, is that we're really quick to rush to the protection of our family. The reality is, is that God says that's supposed to be our nature towards each other. It's supposed to be about protecting each other. That when we sense that there is something of undue harm to somebody's character and reputation, 
that we speak into that as one who protects. But the challenge is, is that not all of us feel that way. We don't always think that way. We kind of stay in our lane and we do nothing. So fortunately, though, God puts himself on record. He doesn't withhold his feelings on this matter. John Calvin puts it this way, that this commandment is literally God's provision to protect every man's character and good name from false accusations by affording a protection to the reputation that we're all called to protect the reputation of another. The challenge is, is that things do happen. People do make mistakes, and they do need to be held into account. But we are often holding people into account by raising our reputation up at the cost of another. We often will choose when we see somebody we don't like or maybe whose reputation isn't as good as yours, so you think, that you will prejudice another person's view of that other individual through manipulation and deception. Have we not seen this take place? Where social media has no accountability, where people will speak poorly of another while receiving applause and attaboys or girls from other people, failing to realize that they have just slandered another human being. Sometimes that might have even been a Christian speaking of another Christian, which is why if you saw that I was very agitated by last fall and how communications were going on between our citizens and the people of school boards, there were often Christians receiving the slander and there were Christians providing the slander. This is a direct violation of God's heart on the matter. Views were shared, incomplete, sharing one thing, but only in part so that it can create a narrative that shapes the way you want it to. You know what I'm saying? Often truth can be said, but it's only in part. 60% of everything you say is fine and true, but you're removing and withholding 40% that would change the whole perspective of another person of what you're talking about. I've been victimized by this myself. And my guess is most of us here in this room have as well. Where somebody shares a story about you that's less than kind. It's meant to put you in a bad light. And when you find out the story, you're like, well, there's a couple of key pieces of information that are being withheld there. And it changes other people's view of you. So what's the motive of the person that's sharing that? Well, it's to raise their own reputation, to raise their own view of how people look at them at the cost of your own. And if you've been victimized by it, and you would say there's been harm and hurt, my guess is that if you took an honest assessment of yourself, you've done it as well. I can say, because God has gifted me with an ability to communicate, and not always is that gift used constructively. Being honest. And as I was younger, it was more often used destructively. I would say things that were true. 
Nobody could say they weren't true, but I would often withhold information that would change the whole perspective of the ones listening. And I could say, I didn't lie, but yet I intentionally deceived because I withheld information. And it came at the cost of how others might view another, just so that my own view in their eyes would be higher. You feel the pain of this? It does not feel well when somebody has spoken poorly of you. And more often than not, it's not always completely accurate. John Wesley made this statement. We are not in any way, in light of this commandment, to endeavor to raise our own reputation upon the ruin of a neighbor. You see, human impulse is to do that. Nobody's clean in here. I, I'm just going to call for what it is. We can go back in time, we can review this, that there are often actions in, in, in all of us that were done in such a way to raise the view of others of you at the cost of somebody else being lowered. There was a moment where I felt like my reputation was under an attack that I might not be able to get out of. In fact, I thought it might be career ending. It was a moment that happened when I was a junior high pastor at Hershey Free Church. And a moment, it, like, it was a moment that was unexpected. It didn't happen when I, you know, when I would see anything like this happening. But, it, but I need to give you context. We take students to beach camp here from this church. And beach camp's a great place where God does a lot of work in the hearts of our young people. But not all things that happen in beach camp are God-honoring. Just shooting straight. As youth pastors, we often have to correct those moments. And this one year, for whatever reason, at a junior high camp, one of my leaders gave a young man a swirly. Many of you are just shaking your head like you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have no clue. Let me tell you what a swirly is. It's when you take somebody, throw them upside down, put their head in a toilet, and flush it. So I just acknowledge that one of my young college-aged leaders did this to a student. Now, there was a strong relationship between this leader and the student. There was a lot of laughter about it. But this was a moment where I could see this is not good. So I confronted the leader. I confronted the students because now they were talking about who was going to get the next swirly. And I saw this is going to be a train wreck if I don't confront it. So I confronted it and it stopped. The following week, we're at a pool party. And at this pool party, one young man who was at beach camp starts to say, within my hearing, let's see if we can give that person a swirly. And I immediately inserted myself and said, you are not going to do that. that. That is not appropriate. To which this young man, who was really fired up that night, says, well, that's just because you're not man enough to be able to make it happen. I have no pride or competitive nature to me whatsoever. <laughs> that would be a lie if... I, in that moment, I'm like, ugh. You know, that, that human nature says, oh, I could prove this wrong right now. 
But I, I didn't. I didn't. I was like, no, this is the end of it. But he incessantly kept picking at me the entire rest of the night that I could not do it because I was not man enough. Finally, my human nature went beyond the wisdom that was in my head and the Holy Spirit. I picked up the kid. I walked him to the bathroom that opens up to the pool area. It was a bathroom specifically for the pool. All the students gathered around. They see what's going down. They've seen his behavior all night. I've got him on my shoulder. I stand next to the toilet, and I simply flush the toilet. I proved that I could manhandle him and flush the toilet at the same time, but I did not give the kid a swirly. I think I've done the best thing I could to teach this kid a lesson and to shut him up without violating what I had said. The next day, I got serviced a letter for child abuse, a formal letter from an attorney. And I was just appalled. I'm like, I don't even know. And it didn't state what I had done. And so I'm thinking through, what, what child did I abuse and what was the context? And then I received a phone call stating about this incident. Well, needless to say, the person who had reported was a friend of the kid that had come. And he was a visitor that night. His parents, his dad was, a, was an attorney. His mom was a medical professional. And they were anti-church people. We all knew them as that in the community. And he had chosen to use this as an opportunity to get back at the church that he had learned to dislike from his parents. But he had told his parents only partial truths. He said that I'd given the kid a swirly, that I'd shoved his kid's head into a toilet and flushed it, which could, you know, for all the right purposes, would be an abuse. But they had gotten the story wrong. Jesus had this happen to him as well. And I'm not trying to put me on par with Jesus, but think about it. On the night that he was betrayed, there was a court case. And it says in Matthew 26 that the, that the Pharisees and Sadducees, the, the priests of the day, were trying to find a way to accuse Jesus. They could not find a way to do so. And then they found two people that were willing to give false testimony. And what did they testify that Jesus says, I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, if you know your scripture well enough, is that exactly what Jesus said? No, he didn't say, I will destroy the temple. He said, destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. There's a much bigger difference between how that terminology comes out. But they withheld key terms to create a narrative to falsely accuse. And under that false accusation, they say he is worthy of death. So the very commandments that those priests were called to hold on to and defend, they violated it themselves. They did not hold to a high view of truth. So what I've learned in my years of doing ministry and of years of working with people, that public service with individuals is not an easy position. In fact, it's fraught with peril. I shared a few weeks ago that the number one stressful uh, people that are stressed out career-wise in America are teachers. Who do teachers deal with? Minors, people, right? And those minors have learned that rightfully so, the law is now 
protecting those who are minors from perpetrators who are adults. And they will allow for a single testimony against single testimony, and they will always support the younger. The younger generation has learned that that is the case, and now they've weaponized that which is good. And teachers are constantly living on eggshells that their careers could end like this due to a false accusation. Because it doesn't matter if it's true or not. It's made, your reputation is now questioned. So working and leading in the public realm has created an impending peril, in my eyes, an impending peril to the tendency that each of us operate to our best interest for the reason of being seen more favorable at the cost of another. So people that work in the service realm, police officers, teachers, those who are in social work, are constantly having to work to make sure that nothing could be accused of poor motive. And they live in fear, constantly. Again, why is that so? Because the ninth commandment has totally been disregarded in society. We're no longer the protectors of each other's reputations. Rather, we feel validated to be the accuser. Let me ask you a question. Are we, by being the accuser to all that is wrong, are we being more like Jesus or are we being more like Satan himself? What is Satan known as? The great accuser, right? And Jesus says, I have come not to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus acknowledges there's error and there's flaws and there's sin that it has separated them from God. But he's come to reconcile that, not to just throw it in their face. But we've taken on a posture in society that throws everybody's air in their face. And guess what happens then? If the society decides that it's egregious enough, you get canceled. You get canceled. You no longer can get a job in anything remotely close to what you're doing. And you're no longer heard by society. Again, if we applied this passage as intended, the ninth commandment is meant to be legal protection to those of us that have, want to have a good reputation. It's providing that we do that for each other. God takes this so seriously that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he gives rules to accusing other people. And here's the crazy rule. He says that all accusations must be brought by two or three witnesses. And that if the person who is accused is found guilty and therefore worthy of death, that the two or three witnesses become the executioners. Could you imagine that if your testimony is going to cause somebody to be put on trial and to be then given a verdict of death, guilty and then the discipline of death, that you would have to participate in that death? What do you think that does to the whole trial side of things? And judging someone. It makes sure that you better have a truthful testimony. Because it's also true that if you falsely testify, you're worthy of death. So the truth levels rise higher in God's kingdom. Here's another thing. 
God's sense of justice is so high that it's got to be built on truth that you're not even allowed that if there is a situation, a case, where there's a rich person and a poor person, that you are not allowed, according to uh, Exodus chapter 23, verse 3, you are not allowed to show favoritism to the poor person. It must be a verdict of truth and truth alone. Because the natural tendency on all our parts is like, well, this is a rich person. This is a poor person. The poor person did something, yeah, that's wrong, but, you know, the rich person can take it. So we're going to make the rich person pay for it. God says that's not justice. And God does a lot to protect the poor. But he says in a court of judgment, truth matters and trumps the issue of poor or rich. <coughs> Excuse me. You see, what we've got going on here is the natural tendency for all of us to think, I get this better than God. I can be a better judge than God. I can make a discerning judgment in this case and, and make it go the way it should. And if I have to cut a few corners to get there, I'm justified because of what the end provides. God says, no way. The whole part of Exodus 23 is to make sure that justice is always filled with truth. Mankind has a sin problem called pride, which causes us to compromise truth and to make us more significant in the eyes of others. <coughs> George MacDonald makes this comment, and George MacDonald is considered the mentor to C.S. Lewis. And so if you've been under C.S. Lewis's works, you would know that George MacDonald would be his key pastor and influence in his life. And George MacDonald made this comment. He said, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. You see, the whole motive to lie or to lie on behalf of somebody else is for yourself and selfish gain or to put yourself in a more favorable light. And if you can just be honest with yourself that there's a natural tendency to want to put yourself in a better light than what is accurate and true, then you might be walking in the place where God is actually doing a great work in you. To think that you do not have that propensity is to already root it in pride. To say, I have no desire to look better in the eyes of other people. I would say pride's keeping you from looking at the honest truth. Truth is often compromised, and as a result, hypocrisy realized when we create a false image of ourselves before others. Whatever that image might be, it is compromising truth, and it is true hypocrisy in the eyes of God. I want us to turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're going to pick up a moment that happens in the early church when God sends a clear message about what he expects in the culture of the church. So Acts chapter 5, and the context is this. At the end of chapter 4, it talks about that what, the, what was going on in the church, that people were helping each other. If someone had need, another would help in that need. 
But it concludes in that context about a story of a man named Joseph, also called Barnabas, who we know from being one of the primary leaders or apostolic leaders in the early church. And Barnabas was convicted in the heart, moved in the heart to do something radical. He sold a piece of property, brought all the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet, gave it to the church. It was so profound that the church has decided, we're going to let this story be known. Because it's the start of when Barnabas rises to become a leader, a key leader in the church. It was a moment of humility and generosity when he gave to the church so generously. Now, you can imagine, as people are looking around, <coughs> seeing this happen in front of their eyes, some of them are like, well, I'd like to get some of that glory. I'd like to get some of that honor. I'd like to be a leader in the church. Well, that happens with a young couple named Ananias and Sapphira. So let's begin by reading in verse 1. Again, this is right after it mentions what Barnabas did. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet, just like Barnabas did. Then Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've, kept, that you've kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land, having lied to the Holy Spirit? Didn't it belong to you as it, was, as it was before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward <clears throat> and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What you see here is this early church is being formed around the Spirit of God working in their hearts. God was, by His Spirit, was causing people to become generous and encouraging to one another. And what was happening is that in some, they decided that this can be an opportunity for selfish gain. And God did not want such a temperament or a practice to happen in His church. So he confronts it strongly by saying, you have lied not only to the church, but you have lied to me. So he wanted to make sure that generosity would never be compromised by being about you getting higher standing in the church. What happened to Barnabas was merely a work of God, not for the praise of men. But Ananias and Sapphira were about to rob this moment 
for Barnabas for the sake of their own personal gain and their own reputation rising up in the church. But instead, it became an opportunity for God to confront. If you take notice in the story, it does not say that Ananias said anything. It just, he brings the money and sets it at the apostle's feet, just like Barnabas. The whole church had known for whatever reason, that the price that Barnabas paid was the amount of money that he brought and put it at the feet. But for Ananias, he did the same thing as to the appearance that he was doing exactly as Barnabas had done, with the same level of generosity. Peter acknowledges there was no requirement. If he had given part of the money, it would have been fine. But instead, he gave the appearance that he was giving it all. And for that, he lied to the church and to God. So what I see in this is that God shows in his severe punishment that godliness and truth are inseparable. Godliness and truth are inseparable. And the church should reflect that reality. So as we look at this ninth commandment, what becomes the reality for us today? Because again, we've acknowledged the law cannot help us. It cannot save us. It cannot empower us. But the law does point us to our need for Jesus. And so how do we receive this law in light of the fact we have Jesus' help? Number one, we are called to protect the reputation of others. If we would let that resonate and percolate inside of us and realize that we are called to be each other's protectors, <coughs> how does that not benefit the church? It does. Significantly. Not at the cost of truth if somebody's in error, but, at the, but definitely with the strength of encouragement towards great character. Number two, we are called to be self-aware of our propensity to raise our reputation in the eyes of others at the cost of truth and even at the cost of our neighbor's reputation. <coughs> the first step towards healing in such issues is being aware to our character and the likelihood that this will happen from time to time where we want to raise up how others see us and sometimes at the cost of truth and hopefully not at the cost of a neighbor's reputation. But it does happen. Lastly, we have to cement this in our mind because I think our mind plays tricks on us. We'll think about the end justifies the means to support the idea that if it's not fully true, but the motives are all right, we're good and God will honor it. Let me just be blunt. Anything less than truth is not coming from God. Anything less than truth is not coming from God. You'll see throughout the Old Testament and the New, <clears throat> when there was a temptation by somebody to help God out by choosing a path that was less than integritous, less than the fullness of truth, God does not shine well upon such moments. In fact, he's angered by them. 
it was a good thing that Ananias and Sapphira wanted to give. It was a bad thing that they wanted to give so that they would be noticed and seen highly, but in the backdrop of something that wasn't true. God intentionally created fear of such things. So too now, as a church that's beyond the early church, in our day, still should have the same reverence for the truth. Let's pray. So Father God, I acknowledge that we're great advocates for ourselves. And many times as we advocate for ourselves, we do so at the cost of truth or the cost of another person's reputation. I recognize I have been guilty of that in my past. I confess it is wrong. And I recognize that it did not please you. So God, instead of us speaking poorly of each other or always quick to judge, help us to be more quick to speak into these things, truth and goodness and things particularly of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Our families, our friends, our communities need to hear about Jesus, not hear about our self-righteousness. So convict us, Lord, and bring us to a place where we're operating with your eyes and your commitment to truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand, please?
Jesus in 
so if you want to hear stories of what Jesus is doing in people's lives, there's going to be a couple of baptisms that are happening after church today. Uh, so our baptistry is just around the corner to my right. Uh, we would love to have you come there and you can hear what God's done in a couple people's lives. Uh, it's pretty special. Baptism's an opportunity to tell of what God's done to change your life. And uh, many of us here have been baptized, been able to tell that story. Uh, I would love for you to hear the story of the two that are being baptized today. If you'd like to talk to someone, uh, there'll be uh, a people in the encounter room that we'd be glad to pray with you and talk with you uh, about what we've shared this morning. Uh, they are available at this time as well. But let me conclude with this. It's already been said that we can't do this on our own. We can't possibly always take the highest level of speaking truth at a selfless level, but with the help of God, we can. It says in, in John, uh, Jesus says this in John 16, 13. It says, but when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. You see, even the Spirit of God sticks to what's been said. doesn't add. He speaks what he hears the Father saying and stays there. Speaks to what the Son says, stays there. Doesn't add live. He speaks truth and then therefore helps us know how to live out truth. So if you are a child of God, we just simply live by the Spirit of truth. Let him speak in your heart so that your mouths can be that of edification. But if you do not know Jesus this morning, God promises that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then Jesus also promises that when you believe and you are saved, he gives you the Holy Spirit as a gift so that you can then be empowered to live the life that through the law alone you would always fail to do. But by the Spirit, we can succeed. And so we would encourage you, if you've never given your life to Jesus, to give your life to Jesus this morning. And then he will give you the Holy Spirit to empower you to live a way where you can protect others as God intended. Amen? You are dismissed. May God use your mouths to speak Jesus into many situations. You are dismissed.